Thank you for listening to Tahlequah First United Methodist Church's sermon podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can go online at tahlequahumc.org. Thank you and have a blessed day. Hadn't this been a beautiful Advent and Christmas season? And now the wait is over, the baby is born, and the story continues with some very interesting, some very puzzling stories. Right after Jesus was born, his parents did some things with the baby that may seem rather odd or culturally quaint to us. In the passage right before the one we read, his parents took him to Jerusalem on the eighth day after his birth for his ritual circumcision and the dedication of the child by by sacrificing two pigeons in the purification of Mary, the new mother, as the Jewish Torah required. And then in this passage, they went to Jerusalem 12 years later, as was their custom, to celebrate the Passover festival. For the most part, we skim over these words as if they were quaint, ancient, and irrelevant to us words us moderns. We focus on the boy Jesus in the temple and the elders and marvel at his precociousness, but I believe that there's a truth hidden in these parents' actions that has a profound meaning for us today. This sermon is entitled, Mary and Joseph, What Were You Thinking? Please pray for me as I pray for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, so two old men are chatting. And one of them says, my friend, you must try this memory pill that I'm taking. I can remember everything. It's amazing, this pill. And his friend said, that's wonderful. What's the name of the pill so I can take it? He said, the name of the pill. Hmm. Let's see the name of the pill. Well, what's the name of that flower? You know, it's red, it has thorns on it, and you give it at Valentine's Day. And the other man said, Rose. He said, That's right. And then calling to his wife, he said, Rose, honey, what's the name of that pill? <laughs> we all have heard dozens of I can't remember it jokes. But we can't remember them. Um, So to understand these quaint practices of Mary and Joseph, we need to remember, remember the beginning. Let's do a little summary here. In Genesis chapter 1, God made the world, declared that it was very good. You remember? And then humanity proceeded to trash it, taking the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Cain killing his brother Abel. And all went down from here, from there until the Tower of the Babel, and the world ended up divided, can't communicate with each other, alienated, fearful. Kind of like it is today. Then got an idea, a plan B, to bless the world that he had just created. He called Abram and Sarai, two very old, very unsuspecting people, to parent a new people who will be a blessing 
to all the world. And that became the nation of Israel. One problem, they couldn't remember their mission to be a blessing. And they kept becoming very selfish. Of course, their selfishness backfired and everything else went bad and they cried to God for help and then God intervened, did some great act of salvation and that generation remembered, but predictably with each succeeding generation after that, they forgot. They thought that being chosen by God was for their privilege, but God chose them to be a blessing to the world. So after Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt, he gave them the Ten Commandments and other laws, giving them instructions on how to be a holy people of God, to be a blessing to the world. He gave them festivals to remember and to rehearse their message. And in this passage of Deuteronomy, he tells them how to remember the commandments. Let's look at it again. These words that I'm commanding you today must always be on your minds. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're sitting down and when, when you're sitting around your house and when you're out and about and when you're lying down and when you're getting up. Tie them around your hand as a sign. They should be on your forehead as a symbol. Write them on your house's door frames and on your city's gates. In other words, do as many things as you can to remember your life's mission to be a blessing. Develop as many habits as you can to remember your divine purpose. Have these words everywhere. Create ways to repetitively teach your children these principles so that the next generation won't forget. The rabbis tell us that the greatest sin, that one greatest act that drives a wedge between us and God and between us and other people, you know what that greatest sin is? It's not adultery. It's not murder. It's not even blasphemy or dishonoring the Sabbath. It's not taking the Lord's name in vain. None of that. All of these, as harmful as they are, can be repented of, confessed, and forgiven. The greatest sin is forgetting. Because if you don't remember who you are, there's no way back. Here in the United States, as a nation, many have forgotten who we are as children of God and who God is, the creator of the world. Now, time was, our society reminded us. Cities and hospitals and streets were named after biblical persons. There was a daily devotion in school and in the, on the radio. Television shows modeled biblical values and Sunday morning was filled with televised worship services. In short, if the parents didn't teach the children the faith, the society supplemented the education. But not now. Parents, you're on your own. Before we throw in the towel, though, let's remember that Mary Joseph lived in a society dominated by pagan Roman values. It would have been easier for them to buy into those values. When in Rome, do as Romans. But they didn't. They followed the law of Moses. They did the prescribed ceremonies after the birth of Jesus. They went to the annual Passover as was their custom. And I have no doubt that they also used Deuteronomy 4 as their lesson plan. 
Recite, the, recite these commandments to your children. Talk about them when you're lying down and getting up. Tie them on your hand, on your forehead, on the doorposts of your house. They taught Jesus to read Hebrew and to recite the songs of the faith. They probably even wore Jesus sweatshirts and had Israel bumper stickers on their car. I don't know. Why? They wanted to remember to be faithful to God and they wanted to raise Jesus to be faithful to God and to help him remember that he was a son of Abraham even though he lived in a society that actively oppressed their faith. So, how do we remember today who we are as children of God? How do we raise children to be fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ in this society that honestly is adversarial to the Christian faith? Actually, we know how to do that already. Think about it. This may be foreign to some of you, but try to get your mind around it. How do you raise a newly born child to become a fan of the right football team? How do you teach a child to bleed orange or cheer boomer sooner? It takes time and repetition, doesn't it? We have customs that we practice religiously. Even before the child can talk, she gets a logo shirt in the proper liturgical colors. We sing the team songs regularly. When the child is old enough, we travel many miles with him to the major festivals and holy shrines, and we faithfully attend the weekly worship services. And if we can't be there, we watch on TV. We pay money to the ushers when we enter the stadium. We sit in the same pews and repetitively sing the songs of the faith. We attentively listen to the designated high priests and quote to each other their comments from the pregame warm-up. And then we talk about the results of the worship service afterward. We are passionate during the worship service, always expecting miracles. And when the Pharisees and the black and white striped shirts don't do our bidding, we outspokenly profess our beliefs. Sometimes we are elated after the worship service and sometimes we're disappointed, but it's never unimportant. We know how to teach a child to bleed orange and cheer boomer sooner, don't we? You know where I'm going. George, you're going to tell me I ought to be that intentional about my own spiritual life and that of my children. Well, actually, I'm suggesting that if we want our children to know their purpose in life is to be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ and to be a blessing to the world, they need to be taught repetitively. Now, I hasten to say that the church is doing its best to help our children and their parents. I think of all the faithful VBS and the Sunday school volunteers those who lead our Wednesday children's program and those who bring their grandchildren to church and read Bible stories to them. But by itself, I'm not sure that this is enough. Think about it. If we take a child to Sunday school twice a month for 45 minutes at a pop, do we really expect the child to remember much? And if we come to worship once a month and barely participate and we walk out and say nothing, what do we remember? There's some who are going to say, but George, that's out of my comfort zone. I'm not a Bible scholar or a trained Christian educator. Well, consider this. 
Like many parents, I coached soccers when my boys were in elementary school. I had never played soccer as a youth and knew nothing about it. But they asked me to coach, and so I said, I'll do my best. I read the rule book. I asked experienced coaches about technique and strategy. I spent time practicing with the boys. I cheered when they did well, and I commiserated with them when they lost. Why? It was important to Alan and Gary. Later, I went with them on Boy Scout campouts and slept on the ground once a month. Ate half-burned, half-raw meals and said, this is great. Why? Was I comfortable? I did it. And did I really know what I was doing? No. I did it to be with them, and many of you did or are doing the same thing. I'd like for us to consider that our children's living a disciple life for the rest of their lives is more lasting and just may be more important than learning to put up a tent or execute a corner kick. How much time do we spend on each? That's why we adults study the rule book. We talk with experienced coaches, learn more about how to do our job as disciples and as coaches of other disciples. Maybe this year could be a time to learn to do that even better. It is important to those who depend on us, whether they know it yet or not. And as we do, we realize that worship is not entertainment. It's not like a movie or a concert that excites us and grants a bit of relief from our boredom and then we go back to the rest of real life. No, worship is the weekly act of praising God and by that act remembering that I am not God. And when I confess my sin, I remind myself that I'm not perfect. And when I receive forgiveness, I remember that I am not doomed to the past. And when I hear God's word, whether it's in song or scripture, liturgy, sermon, sacraments, I fully expect God to speak to me again today. And when worship is over, I re recommit myself to say with Joshua of old, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Each week I grow a little bit more to understand that worship Worship is actually like a rehearsal for a play. Any of you ever been in a drama? It's a drama in which we practice our lines. You see, the Bible is the script, and the weekly bulletin is the director's notes for each scene. And then after this rehearsal, for the rest of the week, we go out to perform the script for all those other folks who also need to hear it. Years ago, I was teaching an adult Sunday school class, and one of the members named Mark was a man of very deep faith. Mark had grown up in a Christian home and gone to church all his life, but there was something special about Mark that made him really committed. One Sunday as an icebreaker, I asked the class to recall one of their greatest memories from childhood. Now, how profound is that? Mark's greatest memory when he was 12 or 13 centered on getting a new bicycle. 
you know, the kind of with the new trim and all the markings and tassels, like everybody else had. Now, he already had a bicycle, but not the kind he wanted. So he kept pestering his parents about a new bike. His parents were not poor, but they were of modest means, and his father said they really couldn't afford a new bicycle this year. Mark shared the following memory with us in the class. One day in our monthly family conference, as our family was discussing the family finances together, I would add, as was their practice. I noticed the check to the church, and it was a large check to me. I said, Dad, how often do you write that check to the church? Every week. It's our tithe. I did some quick mental calculations and said, Dad, if you just didn't write that check just for a few weeks, you could buy me a new bicycle. Dad stopped what he was doing, looked intently into my eyes and smiled and said, yes, we could. But Mark, that's not our money. That's God's money. We give it every week because God gives us, God gives us everything every day. He went on to say, of course, as a boy, I was disappointed. But years later, long after the bike would have rusted away, as a man, I remembered my father's commitment to God that he actually did what we talked about. And it became a blueprint for how I chose to live my own life. Mary and Joseph, when you practiced all those strange religious rites for the baby and went to the Passover in Jerusalem every year, as was your custom, were you thinking? Amen. Thank you for listening to Tahlequah First Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. If you'd love to join us in person, we worship at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and you can find out more information about us by going online at tahlequahumc.org.